Welcome to the Eastern Approaches podcast, hosted by Alex Thompson. For the second instalment of this podcast, I'm once again joined by the analyst Gevorg Virats, who resides in the Near East and last time took us on a whistle-stop tour of Turkey and all its neighbours. Now, Gevorg, we had hoped or expected that for the second instalment of this series, we were going to be looking south to Lebanon, where a rather unusual and dramatic explosion occurred in Beirut Harbour, followed by the threat of a coup d'etat. But as we were thinking about how to take enough distance from the events to analyse that, something else broke, this time on Turkey's eastern flank, which is, to most of our listeners, the most obscure. We're talking here about the Caucasus, and I will encourage listeners to look at a map which I will embed in the link uh, to this podcast on the ukcolumn.org site. But we're talking about a war that's broken out east of Turkey between two countries that people have often vaguely heard of, Armenia and Azerbaijan, the very end of Europe. Um, Neville Chamberlain famously said at the time when the World War was about to break out, the Second World War, uh, that it was a quarrel between faraway people of whom we know nothing that was getting Britain worried. This time Britain doesn't seem worried at all by it because of domestic preoccupations, and it's a lot further away than Czechoslovakia this time. Why should people care about this territory of Nagorno-Karabakh, which Azerbaijan has just invaded? And perhaps to take a step back from that, what is Nagorno-Karabakh? <coughs> Hello, Alex, and thank you for asking this question. It's interesting that, uh, indeed, we expected to talk about Lebanon, but now we need to talk about Armenia and, and Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, Nagorno-Karabakh is, is the Russian name for the territory that is called Artsakh in Armenian. Uh, that territory is a uh, historic uh, Armenian land populated by the Armenian people that was attached to the Republic of Azerbaijan by Stalin in the 1920s, uh, precisely because Azerbaijan was the first in the Caucasus to be incorporated into the Soviet Union. And because at the time, Nagorno-Karabakh was uh, an area disputed between Azerbaijan and Armenia. Uh, since Azerbaijan became Soviet first, they got, uh, got their uh, upper hand on this debate with, with, with Stalin's uh, interference. Uh, it's, it's a part of land that is uh, located uh, truly obscurely. It's in the middle of nowhere by, by all standards. In fact, I tried it's, to visit it once and I was precluded from doing so by a very deep snowfall on a, on a back road, so I can attest to that personally. Even by Caucasian standards, it really is the middle of nowhere. Uh, for instance, if we look at, from, look at it from, from different countries' perspectives, for, uh, Iran, it's, it's in the northwest of Iran, uh, somewhere where the Persians would think of as too far away to even care. Uh, in terms of Russia, it's not even a noticeable place. In terms of Europe, it's also too far away for any, anyone to be influenced by anything that is, happen, uh, that is happening there. And in terms of Turkey, it's, it's uh, east, easternmost fringes where uh, they do feel uh, the tension because of their alliance and strategic partnership with Azerbaijan, but it is still not the middle of Turkey. So indeed, you're right, it's, it's sort of detached from everyone. Yet it is a crucially important piece of land precisely because it is detached from everyone. That's where, uh, where the problem that uh, can uh, get a larger exposure may actually start because there is not enough influence exerted over that territory 
to, to keep it uh, under uh, right control uh, in terms of uh, maintaining peace and security. Indeed, I remember that when any British or other Western official met Azeri counterparts in the 2000s, and I don't suppose it's changed much since then, the first lobbying point would be, 20% of my country has been stolen by Armenian terrorists and they are growing uncontrolled, they are gro growing controlled drugs freely on the territory. I'm sure you've heard about this, uh, this talking point, uh, that if you have any grey zone territories, of which the Caucasus has several, uh, there'll be all kinds of drugs and trafficking and unspeakable things going on in it. Well, uh, going back to what I've mentioned in our previous conversation, Dilana Gaitanjiva's perfect work on exposing uh, Azeri uh, international money laundering and, and trafficking, uh, I, would, I would suggest that uh, Azerbaijan, before, before considering any other country in the world, and I literally mean it, any other country in the world, uh, to, to violate any of the controlled prescriptions, uh, I, would, I would suggest they need to look at themselves very, very carefully because uh, they have been involved in international violations, in uh, criminal atrocities, uh, massacres, uh, for uh, almost uh, three decades now. And uh, the fact that they have a recognized statehood to back up for that uh, doesn't, doesn't mean that they're entitled to uh, disregarding international law and uh, the norms of ordinary morals, the common sense, uh, unfortunately, that hasn't been the case with Azerbaijan because the conflict in 1990 started off by an Azeri attempt to massacre the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh when the Armenians have come out peacefully to declare their desire to get out of the Azeri state that was uh, about to be uh, proclaimed and to join Armenia. And after those peaceful demonstrations with people invoking their right, uh, a Soviet constitutional right actually, to determine themselves freely, uh, they, uh, these people were met with utter violence on behalf of the Azeri uh, state police and military services. And uh, this situation that led to subsequent war is unresolved to this day. So uh, this, the, the difficulty that we're facing today is, is not anything new. It is, uh, it is an old uh, problem, and this old problem has its roots in uh, the Treaty of Ser. In, uh, in, the, in 1920. And, S -S -E -V -R -E -S, uh, S-E-V-R-E-S, if people wish to look it up. That's right. And uh, in subsequent truce uh, that uh, Kemalist Turkey had with uh, the Soviet Union, uh, on the basis of which uh, the Soviet Union uh, accommodated Kemal Atatürk's desire to uh, partition of the Armenian territory as much as possible by extending uh, Nagorno-Karabakh and Nakhichevan territories of Armenia uh, to Azerbaijan and offering them as, 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 as a way to appease both Ataturk and local Azeri governments of the time. So what was this drive? We're talking here early 20s, the aftermath of the First World War, when so much lay in shards and tatters in, in greater Eurasia. What was this drive between, as we mentioned in last podcast, the odd bedfellows of nationalist Kemalist Turkey, arising phoenix-like from the uh, uh, caliphate of the Ottoman Empire, and the new incipient Soviet communist state? Why were they both interested in uh, acting like a hammer and anvil to reduce the Armenians? 
most people's view of the Armenians is a bit like the Jews, a clever, brainy people with not much land, lovely music, great craft skills. Uh, what have they done uh, to make such powerful neighbours want to crush them? Uh, there are two major perspectives from which we can look at the situation. Well, first is, as you've correctly pointed out, uh, the change that happened in the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire in, in, in uh, the early uh, 20th century. Uh, the Ottoman Empire has just perpetrated the Armenian genocide, and one of the first things that Kemal Ataturk has uh, instilled in, in, in the new Turkish society was for the law uh, that prohibited the Armenian refugees from returning to Turkey, to this newly proclaimed land, and all the Armenian refugees from the Armenian genocide in, in, in the Ottoman Empire were stripped of their Ottoman and subsequently Turkish citizenship. Now, uh, well, this was the, the world's first modern problem of stateless refugees at any scale was the Armenians. Well, not, not the first, but definitely, uh, definitely one of the earlier ones in the 20th century. Uh, we, uh, as, as much as some people might not like remembering it, but we definitely need to remember the Afrikaners in, 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 in South Africa. Yes, during, that's, during that's the, a good 15, 20 years earlier. Uh, what I was going to say is that uh, Stalin, with his solution, came later. It was the period when Lenin uh, dreamed of, of an international communist revolution, and they expected Ataturk to become a communist and uh, actually join the Soviet Union as, as its extension in, in Asia Minor, which of course never happened. The Russians, uh, the communist Russians, the Bolsheviks, have flooded uh, Turkey with uh, armor and gold while the Russians themselves were starving and fighting in, the, in, in, in their own civil war. So uh, the decision from the Turkish point of view was based on their desire to expropriate all the Armenian property that was left in Turkey to extort all the financial belongings. And of course, uh, we know that the uh, finances in the Ottoman Empire were largely controlled by the Armenian population, well, mainly because they were very good at it, but also because uh, they had the uh, exposure to uh, the areas in the Middle East and then the British Raj where they could trade, uh, whereas the Turks uh, would not view uh, trade as uh, or trading as as some, something that is appropriate for for a good Muslim to be engaged in. So, uh, with the extermination of the Armenians, Ataturk has uh, set himself this goal of trying to secure all the property and the land, and uh, he uh, asked the Russians uh, to assist in that. Which, which the communists did with vigor. And we must remember that at that time, when the Armenian Republic was still independent, that was a short-lived independence in 1918 till 1920, uh, Armenia was, uh, was the only British ally in that region. And in fact, interestingly, the British regiment in Armenia used to fight side by side with the Armenians against the Turks in, uh, in the southeast of the country. Not, not many people are aware of that, but uh, that's, that's the historic fact that we, we have. If that's now, the prior history, sorry to interrupt, but why is it that come the early 1990s, and people are familiar with this, even if they haven't followed the Caucasus, they know about the other example of the Balkans, that the communist system collapses and all this internecine strife between ethnic groups arises, often falsely called ancient hatreds. They're pretty modern, instilled hatreds, actually. Propaganda does a wonderful job. But if people haven't followed the Caucasus, they still know about this 
tendency uh, of this, this period of the 90s when things flared up. Uh, in fact, Nagorno-Karabakh and Chechnya and Bosnia and, uh, were all mentioned you know, by the bien-pensant in London in the 90s, all in the same breath, basically. Why then with that history of British military alliance with the Highlanders fighting under Andranik and these others in the 1920s, why when it came to the 90s, did Britain uniquely among the major European and North American powers not join up for the Minsk group under the auspices of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe at a time when Britain was very interested in the, the conflicts um, uh, raging in Georgia, those in Ossetia and uh, Abkhazia, and has long pursued diplomacy and gone through EU channels and OSCE channels to resolve them. Why does uh, Britain's Foreign Office and, and Ministry of Defence seem to have had extremely low interest in Nagorno-Karabakh, with the one interesting exception of Tony Blair early in office, apparently off the cuff, promising a British peacekeeping battalion if there were a political solution reached between Armenia and Azerbaijan? Well, um, we, we need to be aware of the history and of what happened afterwards in order to answer this question. And uh, as we all know, Turkey didn't become a communist state. Turkey didn't join the Soviet Union and didn't expand with the Soviet Union in the future. Uh, what it did instead was joining NATO and becoming a part uh, of uh, the joint interest of the Anglo-American alliance. And uh, with the U.S. military bases in Turkey, and with, uh, with a strong British interest in uh, maintaining Turkey as its uh, primary base in the Middle East should something happen to uh, its uh, ties with the Arab world. Uh, I uh, doubt very much that Britain could also maintain uh, any a significant interest in the opposite camp. That's precisely why uh, the Armenians, uh, uh, when uh, they had to uh, sort of uh, choose uh, for, for cooperation uh, amongst uh, possibilities in Europe and, and, and beyond, they, uh, they turned uh, to the United States and France before they have established any sort of close ties with, with the British state. However, uh, there are prominent British individuals that have always shown their cooperation with, uh, with Armenia because to them, the Armenian cause was a pure representation of what a fight for justice and a struggle for freedom truly is. This goes back and, as far as Lord Byron, doesn't it? Well, it does, uh, because Byron uh, learned Armenian in Venice at the Makitarist monastery, uh, an Armenian Catholic monastery, and he was very fond of the Armenian language and the Armenian culture, but I, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Baroness Cox, who uh, has been very persistent in devoting her efforts to supporting the Armenians precisely in the Nagorno-Karabakh region, in a place where now we're seeing a huge war going on. In fact, Lady Caroline Cox has written to Tahir Tawhizadeh, the Azeri ambassador in London, just this month. I have here a letter of the 10th of September 2020. And perhaps I'll read the opening section of that because it provides... A summary of what you've been saying, I know it's hard on listeners when we're talking about such unfamiliar parts of outlying Europe, to summarise the names and the dates, uh, but she says, Dear Ambassador, your letter of the 7th of September refers to so many misconceptions that I find it necessary to put some alternative accounts of reality on the record. In particular, I wish to highlight concerns about Nagorno-Karabakh. This is the first section of her letter, and we'll read another one later. Lady Cox writes, It was Stalin who located the ancient Armenian land of Karabakh, or Artsakh, with a 95% Armenian population, in Azerbaijan, as a, quote, autonomous region, unquote. Of course, the Soviets 
comment here by Alex, the Soviets did this in many republics. They made things supposedly autonomous, such as South Ossetia within Georgia. Lady Cox goes on. Azerbaijan, or of course Crimea within Ukraine under Khrushchev. Azerbaijan, Lady Cox continues, later usurped large swathes of, of its lowlands. If people look on the map, they'll see that Nagorno-Karabakh is an enclave entirely within Azerbaijan. Uh, and Azerbaijan created Nagorno-Karabakh as a mountainous enclave detached from Armenia. Between 1991 and 1994, Azerbaijan initiated a war against the Armenian population living in Nagorno-Karabakh in breach of internationally recognized conventions. For example, by the use of cluster bombs and 400 Grad missiles a day fired onto the civilian population of Stepanakert, the main town there. I was there, adds Lady Cox, <clears throat> and can testify to the truth of this violation of human rights. I also witnessed the immediate aftermath of the massacre by Azeris at Marara and saw decapitated civilian bodies and homes still smouldering from the military attack. Further evidence is recorded in Ethnic Cleansing in Progress, War in Nagorno-Karabakh by Caroline Cox and John Eibner, E-I-B-N-E-R, 1993. Lady Cox adds, I believe that the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh who are engaged in the process of their independence on an equivalent legal basis as Azerbaijan in 1991, that's the Soviet constitutional way out that you mentioned, Gevorg, have sufficient evidence to claim the same right of self-determination justified by Azerbaijan's attempted ethnic cleansing as the people of Timor-Leste or East Timor, Eritrea and Kosovo do, who have been granted or awarded self-determination for suffering comparable attempted ethnic cleansing. So obviously this is um, a combative tone in this letter. Lady Cox is engaged in correspondence here with an ambassador who's obviously wanting to put his country's version of events on the record as well. But how does uh, a member of the House of Lords, not one by birth of course, but one who was appointed by Mrs Thatcher on merit, get so involved in the case? And this is a very different uh, claim than one often hears uh, from Azerbaijan about uh, naked aggression by Armenians and firing on our uh, Azeri populations in the area. Uh, how are we to make sense of this this jungle of claim and counterclaim? Well, first, first of all, this woman is an honest Christian, and because of her faith, she will not tolerate injustice. And she saw that uh, there is a lot of injustice happening in, in Nagorno-Karabakh area. It is uh, obvious from history and from uh, the more recent events that are also in our history uh, that Turkey and Azerbaijan are both set at uh, destroying the Armenian nation entirely. Uh, the Turks have perpetrated the Armenian genocide, and while they were doing that, the Azeris were massacring the Armenians in, in what today's Azerbaijan. Uh, just to make a facile point for those not familiar with the map, Turkey is on the west of Armenia. Armenia, at the relevant point, has a corridor of, what, 50 miles or less? And then you've got this larger, richer country compared with Armenia, namely Azerbaijan on the east. So it really is an isthmus, a narrow strip of land buffered between two much, much larger, uh, more populous, uh, richer countries. Uh, their aim is to unite at Armenia's expense because the Turks uh, as set in their 1908 model uh, for uh, then the Ottoman Empire, but the ideas have continued uh, subsequently within the Turkish society, Turks uh, are aiming to create a unity of the Turkic peoples, which they uh, call the Greater Turan. That's, uh, that's the whole territory from uh, Bosnia to um, Central Asia and even to Yakutia in Russia, because uh, everywhere from the east to the west, you will find uh, the people of Turkic stock, 
And the Turks had this idea of creating an ethno-nationalist empire. And uh, Armenia is in the way. Armenia sits right in between uh, Turkey and the rest of the Turkic world. Of but course this is they something want to a concern for Europeans as well, isn't it? Because in the Netherlands, in Germany, in Austria, in France, we're starting to see very big nationalist Turkish demonstrations on the streets and big trouble with police if those demonstrations are ever curtailed. Uh, Turkish uh, government ministers come to address these rallies when they can, certainly send them moral sucker. Uh, and the message often is, you are in Europe to be an arm of the Turkish state. So could this uh, Turkish uh, ethno-nationalist empire, this pan-Turkic state, uh, end up embracing Western Europe or parts of it in the end as well? We don't know, but uh, what we do know is that once the Ottoman Empire was stopped at the gates of Vienna, uh, now the gates of Vienna are no longer holding them back. Uh, the Turkish population is very comfortably placed uh, far beyond Vienna in terms of the European continent. And uh, we, we don't know what uh, what the Turkish state is going to uh, do with with the influence that it has over its uh, Turkish uh, and, and and foreign citizens of Turkish origin subject? Uh, some of those examples we've already seen in Germany, for instance, when when Erdogan visited Germany a few years ago and uh, mass demonstrations by, by the ethnic Turks in, in Germany supporting Erdogan, even though the interest of the German people and the interest of the Turkic peoples or the Turkish people uh, aren't always the same. Now, I would say also that uh, Europeans uh, today are not uh, very aware of the difficulties they're facing. Uh, on multiple levels. It's uh, not just to do with Turkey and Turkish influence, but it is also the way the European Union uh, builds their policies in terms of radical Islam. Uh, as, as we all know, uh, many members of ISIS were, were actually from, from the European Union, and then sadly some of them were from Britain as well. So uh, are the European governments really aware of the danger that this poses? I'm not sure, I'm not convinced. There's a particular uh, interest in many countries, the Netherlands, Belgium, France, Britain, uh, in one of them, Shamina Begum has become a cause célèbre. There's a high interest, it seems, in the interior ministries of Western European countries in spiriting the women back from Syria uh, to their... I was going to say home countries, but their countries of passport or country of residence would be a better way of putting it, often in the dead of night or with threats of uh, sanctions against journalists for mentioning details. Uh, why such interest in bringing back women who in many cases have documented participation or have had a documented participation in uh, some very heinous acts in Syria and elsewhere? Going back to Armenia, though, Alex, because we've parted from, from the topic a little bit, I would uh, like to underline this. Now, Armenia is an obscure place in the middle of nowhere, okay? And, and, and Nagorno-Karabakh is, is also uh, something like that as well to the Europeans. However, we must remember that everything in the world is interconnected, and now the pressure that is being put on Armenia from, from Turkey and Azerbaijan, that pressure, when, when uh, or not, never, of course, not when, but uh, if possibly, that pressure uh, would no longer need to be uh, put there, could, could go elsewhere, okay? So uh, I believe it's important right now to recognize the fact that uh, Armenia in Nagorno-Karabakh, the Armenians of Artsakh today are, are protecting the balance in, in the Middle East and uh, also in Europe by uh, keeping the whole Turkish agenda in check 
with of course uh, with of course uh, the influence from different parts of the world including Russia and, and uh, the United States of America and China but uh, this is this is crucial uh, for, for understanding the whole architecture of the Middle East we have just just a few countries that are as important and as well placed in inverted commas as, as, as is Armenia and then certainly Armenia is one of those countries. Uh, remove that, and what you get is the totally different structure of the Middle East, a far, far more um, directed at expansion, uh, both eastwards and westwards. Armenia so, is, in, in terms of its standing within the former Soviet Union, and the Commonwealth of Independent States. Armenia and Belarus are in the same bracket in that they are not entirely aligned. They're often offhandedly called pro-Russian countries, and it's often remarked that this is unusual for Russia's immediate neighbors. Usually they flip to total um, alignment with the United States, the European Union and NATO, economically, militarily, and in other ways, politically, the, uh, the social transformation agenda. Armenia and Belarus have been quite recalcitrant in that regard, preserving traditional family values, uh, old-fashioned political life, and uh, a warm relation with Moscow. Uh, how is Armenia now getting on? Obviously, Belarus has gone another way, and Mr. Lukashenko might be out on his ear before long, and Belarus seems to be heading towards a union state with Russia. But Armenia, of course, is not contiguous with, with Russia, and it's, it's in a different part of the world, really, sort of borderline Middle Eastern part of the world, and it's not a feasible solution for Armenia to be subsumed or incorporated into Russia. But how is Armenia doing right now in its relationship with the EU and NATO? Because in both of these organizations, it's got a kind of consolation prize. Um, it's not got any promise of membership, but the EU has put it into a bracket known as the European Neighborhood Partnership, and NATO has put it into a bracket known as Partnership for Peace, and partnership in both of those organizations' terms means you might, be get, you might get to join us in several decades' time, but for the time being, we want convergence and, and some joint exercises with you. Uh, is Armenia happy compared with its neighbors who are in those partnerships or, or less so with its arrangement? Um, there is a general tendency in the Armenian people to disregard these large entities. Uh, so we're, we're haters of any unions, the Armenian people. Uh, the Armenian people like to deal with, with every uh, single nation individually because traditionally the Armenians have preserved uh, their identity within different imperial frameworks. And because of that, they uh, view other peoples as vessels of, uh, of an important identity that, uh, that is of value. And only through dealing with that uh, identity, you can uh, enrich each other in a in a positive way, because you can observe what others have to offer, and through that benefit each other. Uh, but uh, politically and geopolitically, uh, the Armenians uh, are uh, in. Of course, they are in uh, the uh, Russian-led union that is of little value other than selling the Armenians uh, Russian military equipment at, uh, at prices that are lower than uh, they would sell internationally. Uh, it, is, it, is an, it is important enough a reason to, to be uh, in that union for the Armenians because Armenia isn't a rich country and uh, it isn't uh, able to compete always with uh, uh, what Turkey has and what Azerbaijan has because Azerbaijan has large reserves of oil and they're benefiting from that. And Turkey is benefiting from its position in the Middle East and of course, from all the Armenian, Greek, and the Assyrian belongings that they have stolen in the First World War. 
But uh, what's very important here is, is to say this. The Armenians uh, do not have any animosity whatsoever to uh, the West or to the Russians uh, or to anyone else for that matter, except, of course, uh, their feelings towards the Turkish state and the Azeri states. And because Turkey is, is a main member of NATO, uh, the Armenians uh, would not associate themselves with NATO under any circumstances whatsoever. Now, uh, partnering with NATO and with certain NATO countries would be fine, and uh, that is going on. But uh, it is very difficult to be in the same alliance as, uh, as, as the country that wants to destroy you utterly and completely. As and, uh, Greece uh, is increasingly finding, I have to say. Well, yes, uh, the Greeks uh, are finding out about, uh, about the benefits of such relationships, uh, as, as do the Cypriots. Now, uh, Britain has long maintained its naval military bases in, in Cyprus. How did that prevent... Uh, the north of Cyprus from from Turkish occupation. Uh, good question that might be. Yeah. Well, of so, course, our two sovereign base areas are on the south side of Cyprus and have continued ticking over and supplying uh, not just the Royal Air Force with a convenient base for the Middle East, but as is well known these days, major GCHQ bases covering the Middle East. And these weren't immediately threatened, so a cynic might say, that the asset is ownership of the part of Cyprus, the southeast, that faces the Levant directly. And in fact, the French seem to be wanting a large slice of that action now, basing uh, a squadron or two of their own jets and possibly even their own signals intelligence units in that part of Cyprus alongside the British ones. Where are the Cypriots in this deal? Um, supposedly okay. sovereign since 1960, but uh, there was only 12 or 14 years between that and the, uh, the invasion in 74, so... Wasn't much sovereignty there, was there? Of course, since uh, 2015, uh, uh, I beg your pardon, 2005, they've been in the European Union as well. Yes, they have been in the European Union, uh, but the problem is that uh, the north of their country is occupied by Turkey, and uh, there isn't any retaliation whatsoever from uh, Cyprus's partners to somehow contain Turkey within its international borders. Right now we're seeing another conflict in Syria that is dominated by Turkey in, in the north of the country. And uh, yet again, uh, do, we see, uh, do we see much interference there from, uh, from, from NATO? And how much, how much uh, resilience do the US troops show to uh, repel the Turks and to uh, get them out of the Syrian soil. Uh, with, with all due respect to the good that is done by, uh, by the Western powers, it is important to recognize that continuous recognition of Turkey as, as a state uh, at the same level as other states has emboldened Turkey because Turkey hasn't been initially created as a normal state and it does not uh, continue uh, as, as a normal state. Now we're getting as, somewhere because uh, I hope this completes or, or uh, complements your thought. Belgium and Turkey, we know from the evidence of whistleblowers such as Sibel Edmonds, are treated in the NATO club not the Signals Intelligence Five Eyes Club, but the sort of slight loosely aligned, more criminal, more military club of NATO main players. Belgium and Turkey are treated as honorary Anglo-Saxons. Hands off, never look at what goes through these territories, countries. And now you're saying that Turkey is in the same basket as Belgium in another way, which is that basically, to cut things short, the Anglo-Saxons created them as a non-country or a country inflated beyond the territory of an ethnic group for a particular reason. So is it by design? That these countries punch above their weight or, or, or that nasty things go on on their territory? Uh, it, uh, it may uh, well be by design, but uh, from the Armenian perspective, uh, 
the Armenians uh, should not uh, regard uh, that highly at all, whereas that is by design, uh, whether that is by design or not, because uh, the Armenians have to deal with the existent reality. And the existent reality is that there is Turkey that is violent, that is aggressive, it's um, set at another genocide, helping Azerbaijan to actually fulfill that. We have uh, Israeli support uh, in, in that. Uh, maybe that is not as uh, intensive as, as, is, as is the Turkish support, but still uh, the Israelis have their part to play in, in today's Azerbaijani military attack. And uh, looking at the situation from the Armenian point of view, I would say uh, uh, you know, the Armenian contra mundum, the Armenians against the world, that's how the Armenians view the situation. And uh, they're standing firm in, in Artsakh. Uh, we have uh, information about uh, recent battles. And uh, right now, I've been looking at the news that came through. Uh, 58 Armenian soldiers were uh, found as casualties and over 370 Azeri soldiers uh, were, were also uh, dead in the recent clashes. Uh, interestingly, as I mentioned earlier, the Turks have uh, continuously uh, filled the Azeri army with the uh, terrorists, the former ISIS terrorists from Syria. There's about 4,000 of them fighting uh, currently. Well, as of yesterday evening, there's 103 of them less because they were reported dead as well. But initially there was 4,000 uh, Syrian jihadis uh, or northern Syrian jihadis so in, in, in Azerbaijan. Oh, is it the men from the Idlib pocket that Vanessa Bili and others have been talking about for quite some time? That's exactly right. Uh, these, are, that these are the Idlib terrorists. So, so that's where they ended uh, up? Attacking Christians. Well, that's that's what they do. Uh, they totally uh, share in, in the goal that has been set out to them by Turkey. They're not there for Islam. They're not there for uh, any noble goal. They're there for Turkish international bloodthirsty interest. So and would you go so far as to say that it is not particularly an Islamic aim to make the Middle East Juden-Rhine and Christen-Rhine. It's more of a Turkish state aim. Well, uh, I do not regard the jihadis as uh, rightfully Muslim because uh, there's, well, there are many other examples of Islam that are not a radical Islamic jihadi. To me, these are merely terrorists under the guise of what they call Islam. But uh, that's, that's another story. Now, they do pose as Muslims, and we uh, sort of perceive them that way. But uh, I do honestly think that uh, this situation in the north of Syria and whatever is currently going on in Armenia, that is all based and rooted deeply in, in the traditional historic Turkish interest of dominating the Middle East and subsequently dictating its will to the rest of the world, which will not happen. The other countries we've been talking about all have an Armenian diaspora presence. There's even some in eastern Turkey to this day, although I understand many of them are unaware themselves that they have Armenian progenitors or they are aware of it and conceal it, which also happened with some of the Christian ethnicities in the Soviet Union, the Greeks and the Armenians. But uh, the other countries around Syria and Lebanon in particular have got very substantial Armenian diasporas from the time of the genocide a century ago, haven't they? Uh, although that's been thinned out by the war. Does that affect the relation between the states as well? 
Uh, which states do you mean exactly, Alex? Between uh, Lebanon and Syria on the one hand, and Turkey on the other, the presence of the Armenians. Well, uh, these, two, uh, these two countries are two different examples, because Lebanon is, is such a mishmash of cultures and uh, traditions that uh, it's always uh, important to uh, look at the situation carefully. Whenever the Sunnis are in power in Lebanon, then we, 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 we know that the interest, uh, the Turkish interest, is going to be advanced uh, there. Uh, whenever the Shias have the upper hand, then the interest of Iran is going to prevail over the other, other parties. Uh, and then, of course, if the Christians, the Maronite Christians, uh, are in power, then uh, Lebanon is going to be more pro-French and pro-European. So with Lebanon, uh, the Armenian population is, is very neutral. It stands for uh, the integrity of the state of Lebanon. The Armenians of Lebanon like the fact that the citizens of Lebanon have their freedoms there, and uh, uh, it is not a state based on Sharia law because the Armenians are Christian and they would not like to live under Sharia law. Uh, but uh, the Armenians don't side with any particular uh, group in Lebanon. Uh, they're preoccupied with, with preservation of uh, the Armenian community, of the Armenian community, and then with uh, establishing closer links with, uh, with the other Armenians in the region and beyond. Whereas in Syria, uh, the Armenians, uh, of course, are a small minority compared to uh, the Sunnis. But uh, the interesting uh, fact about Syria is that Syria is currently ruled by a family that belongs to another minority, the Alawite minority. And, and uh, these Alawites, uh, these are, these are uh, friendlier people towards the Armenians than are than are the uh, Sunnis of, of the rest of Syria, because the Sunnis of the rest of Syria are far more inclined to cooperate with Sunni Turkey, and many of them see Erdogan as their natural leader, because he's the successor of the Sultan who used to rule over them for centuries. So uh, the Armenians in Syria are far more aligned generally with the government of Syria and they support, support the government of Syria, even though, uh, of course, they're criticized for it by the other Syrians and uh, many of the Syrians. We, we don't want to get sidetracked onto even such a crucial question as Syria when we're talking about the Nagorno-Karabakh war. But it is worth posing, posing the hypothetical question. When various Christian groups in the Levant, in Syria and Lebanon, are accused of being Assad toadies or pro-Iranian or stooges of, uh, stooges of uh, Shiite terrorism or whatever they're accused of being, and this has gone on for decades, really, since the, uh, the Syrian presence in, in Lebanon since the 70s, the question has to be asked, for any community that is not fairly conservative Sunni Muslim in those countries, what possible regime would be more tolerable or favorable to them than that of the al-Assads? There is a saying in Russia uh, that um, uh, whichever car the Russians make, what they get as a result is a tank. You know, uh, whichever regime the Arabs produce, they're going to get a caliphate in the end. This is, uh, I suppose, the US equivalent is Henry Ford's joke that you can have any color of car you want as long as it's black. That, you know, that's uh, very, very similar to, to what's being said. But uh, it, it, is, it is difficult in the Middle East uh, with, uh, the, with the arrival of uh, the Turkish modern Turkish so-called secular state, and especially with, uh, with Erdogan's uh, power over it, uh, this region has become extremely dangerous, extremely dangerous for, for the Christians and, of course, the Jews and other minorities that are not mainstream 
conservative Sunni Muslim. Now let's home in in the final section of this podcast on the region that's the pretext for the podcast in the first place. This territory which, just like South Ossetia, the separatist region of Georgia, is only the size of an English county or the size of Rhode Island and only has perhaps a tenth of the population of most English counties or the state of Rhode Island, measured in, I think, the high tens of thousands or the low hundreds, various calculations. You can help me there. What is the official population of Nagorno-Karabakh? It's 150,000 people. So it's the size of um, a not very notable British city or, or minor league US city. Uh, let alone a, a US state or a British county. Now, escalation of tensions is the final section of Lady Cox's letter to the ambassador of Azerbaijan in London in her letter of the 10th of September 2020. And here she covers the events since 2000, particularly the, ter- the, the, um, the hot surge that there was in spring 2016, which at UK Column News, we were one of the very few outlets in Britain to cover at the time. So Lady Cox writes... Azerbaijan violated a key European convention. She doesn't mean a legal convention, I think, but a a civilised convention. By pardon... No, actually, I think I'm wrong there. I think she does mean a a legal convention. By pardoning, rewarding and glorifying an Azerbaijani army officer who hacked to death a sleeping Armenian colleague in Hungary in 2004. So we referred to Partnership for Peace. Well, this is what happened once on the NATO Partnership for Peace Uh, exercise in uh, Budapest, Hungary, Uh, an Armenian officer sleeping in his bunk got an axe buried in his skull. Lady Cox uh, continues, according to a recent judgment by the European Court of Human Rights, uh, Azerbaijan's actions amounted to the approval and endorsement of this very serious ethnically based biased crime. That's, uh, it does say ethnically biased, probably based. Uh, is what's meant, but these are quotes in that sentence from the ECHR judgment. Lady Cox continues, over a four-day period in April 2016, Azeri forces launched an offensive into the territories controlled by Armenian forces in Nagorno-Karabakh, resulting in many deaths. I think I'm right in saying it was in the order of 250 Armenian military losses, correct, Gibor? Uh, in, uh, in, in, in June, July this year? No, in April 2016. In, in April 2016, that's, that's about correct. That's right. Lady Cox continues, in July this year, 2020, Azerbaijan, so we're getting into the immediate uh, run-up now that you referred to. In July this year, Azerbaijan deployed artillery batteries close to civilian populations in Tavush. Now, for anyone who knows the region, Tavush is nowhere near Nagorno-Karabakh. It's right up at the top of the border between Armenia and Azerbaijan proper. Uh, and Lady Cox adds, far north of Nagorno-Karabakh, with reports that the, Arme- that the Azerbaijani military opened fire in the direction of a face mask production factory, which plays an essential part in the country's coronavirus response. There were also reports of an attack against a kindergarten in the village of uh, Aigepar in Tavush province. Also in July... Pro-war demonstrations were held in Baku. Gevorg, you mentioned this when we did our last podcast, during which, Lady Cox adds, thousands of protesters demanded the Azeri government fully deploy the army, chanting death to Armenians, with some even entering the national parliament. I think you said, Gevorg, that they reached the third floor before being beaten back. There remains, as, as Lady Cox, there remains significant dismay at Azerbaijan's established policy of promoting hatred of the Armenians. Uh, I myself, Georg, as I think I've mentioned to you in the past, have seen school books and general culture guides for tourists produced in Azerbaijan as late as 2007, I'm sure it hasn't changed since, that talk about the wicked Armenian terrorists and children being interviewed about their desires and and saying, I want to kill Armenians. So it's really North Korean stuff including, adds Lady Cox, the teaching of hatred in schools and proclaiming Armenia number one enemy, as well as recent inflammatory statements from the Azerbaijani Defence Ministry, quote from the Azerbaijani MOD, the Armenian side must not forget that the -the state-of-the-art missile systems our army has are capable of launching a precision strike on the Metsamor nuclear power plant. So yes, 
a country in supposedly Europe for some purposes has threatened to bomb a nuclear power plant. End of quote in the letter. Lady Cox continues, such a hostile policy underpins the widespread concern that Azerbaijan is committed to war and cruelty rather than the promotion of cross-border dialogue and a truly just settlement to the aftermath of previous aggression. And then Lady Cox signs off courteously. Give or we could go any number of ways with this, but let's talk in a serious and civilised way for a moment about the Azerbaijani people. Um, I've enjoyed their wonderful kindness and hospitality on visits myself. Uh, you've already said that the Armenian attitude is to distinguish the government of Turkey and Azerbaijan from the people. But what is it about the government cadre in Azerbaijan that makes them, quite frankly, below European or international norms of behaviour? I mean, I myself have witnessed at events in London uh, held by the Foreign Office and its hangers-on in the NGO world, I have witnessed trainee Azerbaijani diplomats get up and, and uh, scream at the top of their lungs and turn purple in the face with rage when uh, footage has been shown of people getting on with their lives in Stepanakert in Nagorno-Karabakh. And the, the yelling was of the order of, how dare you taunt us Azerbaijani people with this terrorism? I am so proud of my country, we will invade it and take it back. Uh, what, what is the source of this uh, behaviour? Has this cadre of government and military people in Azerbaijan been mind-controlled? No, this is, uh, this is interesting. Uh, well, first of all, I don't think that uh, you and I should find any difficulty in talking about Azerbaijan in a civilised manner, because uh, the Azeris, in as much as uh, atrocious they might be, are uh, still people who, who are here to stay. They're not going anywhere. They're not. They're no aliens to this world. And uh, we understand that these people have had their difficulties, and there is their side to the story, and uh, there is a multi-layer side to their story as well. Now, after all, they have arrived in in our region, in in the Caucasus, and in the north of the Middle East. From, from their Central Asian steppes, and uh, they need to somehow establish themselves in our region. Now, they've been living in the region for quite some time. Uh, the time was apparently not enough for them to settle in in a way that the other peoples have settled in, uh, but uh, maybe with the time they will. But as of now, they, uh, they are a society that is controlled by base, that is uh, chieftains in, uh, in a Turkic society. And uh, uh, that's, that's their natural state of life. And uh, with, with this respect, we must understand and recognize that we're dealing with a nation at a certain level of internal cultural development. It's not something individual, and none of us would ever say that individual Azeris are not culturally apt or developed or anything of the sort. But as a society, one does need history in order to become, uh, to become an established uh, nation that can function within itself and function well. Now, Azerbaijan has uh, only come into existence in 1918. That's the first time ever when this word, Azerbaijan, was uttered in regard to the territory where, where, where it exists. The Armenians often joke that Coca-Cola is older than Azerbaijan. And not so, just, this, but uh, just to interrupt for a moment, Matthew Arnold, the son of the famous uh, school headmaster Thomas Arnold, Matthew Arnold wrote many epic poems in the mid-19th century, including one about Sohrab and Rustam, two ancient Persian uh, heroes and their, their fatal encounter. And that's a famous piece of English poetry that many people used to memorise at school, you know, maybe not in in my parents' generation, but my grandparents' generation. And Azerbaijan features there as yet another Persian province. So absolutely, Azerbaijan is the name of a republic or as having to do with Turkic peoples is only a century old. Uh, interestingly enough, the historic uh, uh, name of Azerbaijan was never attributed to 
this particular area in the world, the real Azerbaijan uh, lies southwards to Armenia and then the Republic of Azerbaijan of today. It, it is in Iran. And uh, Iran still has West Azerbaijan and East Azerbaijan as its provinces. The only reason why this territory was named Azerbaijan is because uh, no other name could unify the different Turkic tribes that lived in that territory with the indigenous peoples of the north of that country. That, uh, that are the mountainous Caucasian peoples, because uh, the original name of the dominant population there was, was the Caucasian Tatars. And then they were joined by the Talish of Iran. And the Talish is, is a name for, for a Persian group of people. And um, there were also uh, the people that are called the Lesgi in the north. And there are the Tsahurs that are also in the north. They're, they're the Dagestani northern people. Uh, how do you bring these peoples together? And what name do you give them in order to somehow uh, forge this unity? Because you want to create a republic that now will dominate this territory. So, so the term Azerbaijan was, was appropriated because it was the nearest thing to that place. And they couldn't call the territory Georgia because Georgia is something else and Armenia also is something else. So they, had, they couldn't call it Tatarstan because the name was taken by a bunch of people even in central name, Russia. Even that name was taken. And then Stalin affirmed, uh, affirmed this name because, but actually, interestingly, when the, uh, when the Tatars proclaimed their Republic of Azerbaijan, they would still call themselves the Tatar people the Caucasian Tatar people, citizens of the Republic of Azerbaijan. And then the, the Stalin regime in that period, they have actually created the Azerbaijani people as an ethnos, as, as a people group, which, which never existed before. But the point I was making with this is, is that we need to give that society some time to establish themselves, to settle in, to kind of look around, and try to build their relations with with uh, their neighbors, help them understand who their neighbors are. So, yes, we will be civilized and we will be uh, cultured. But uh, when it comes to the interest of the Armenian people and the inalienable right of the Armenian people to live on the Armenian soil that has been Armenia, and populated by the Armenian people for thousands of years. Now, when, when that is put to question, then, of course, the Armenian people will respond with whatever way they possibly can to protect their uh, God-given uh, right and their uh, families and uh, their independence to be themselves. Never mind uh, Stalin's decisions or Lenin's decisions or Ataturk's decisions. Armenians are determined to exist, and they will exist. And this is manifest in the fact that uh, over uh, 90 million people, uh, Turkey and Azerbaijan put together, have been fighting the Armenian nation for the last 100 years, in, in, in different manifestations of this uh, fight, yet they couldn't succeed because the determination of the Armenian people is very, very strong. And that, that is something that I wish some of the other friendly nations could, could learn from the Armenians. Uh, uh, British Prime Minister used to speak about how you uh, should never give up. But uh, today, our European friends and counterparts and allies often are likely to give up and willing to give up when they're facing a difficulty of a minor scale, uh, not, uh, not anything existential, not anything that will swipe their nations from the face of the earth. Uh, yet, uh, yet if they look at the Armenians 
and, and see that even under the most difficult of the circumstances, you can still stand your ground, you can still try to build your land and build your society with, with much difficulty, with many problems and hardships, but continue in that direction, you will succeed. And I want to assure our listeners that right now the situation uh, at, at the you know, front in, uh, in Armenia, in Artsakh, with Azerbaijan is, is quite heavy. It's very heavy because uh, the uh, military budget that Azerbaijan has at hand is uh, larger than the entire Armenian budget. Yet, nevertheless, uh, the Armenians are going to are going to actually win this war, and uh, the Armenians are going to persevere. The Armenians are going to show the world once again that they are determined to stand for what people believe is just, what is right, uh, because uh, this this often goes in the Israeli-Arab relationship. When uh, the Israelis say that uh, the day when the Palestinians stop shooting, the war will end. Uh, because the Israelis won't shoot anymore. Now, I don't want to say anything about whether that is true or not. But certainly in, in the Armenian situation, in case of the war with Armenia and Azerbaijan, then it is true because the Armenians are, are not intended at, at any military uh, attack uh, at anyone else. Uh, the Armenians uh, are protecting themselves, and uh, that they will do. Uh, and uh, very soon, hopefully, we shall all be witnesses of, uh, of the outcome of this strike. And with that closing uh, prospect, Gevorg, I'd like to thank you very sincerely for taking the time to give us the details of this uh, new war, the first 48 hours as we speak uh, of a full frontal attack on Nagorno-Karabakh and your description of the Armenian people I think is particularly striking when UK Column spends so much of its time deploring the reign of health and safety culture and the misuse of risk assessments. Uh, one might almost be tempted to say that the Armenians' worst enemy could inflict the worst pain on them uh, by uh, spreading the health and safety culture, which is conspicuous by its absence. But uh, many thanks indeed for this. Uh, life goes on, as you say. And uh, I trust that in a couple of weeks' time, we'll be able to continue our peregrinations of the region, uh, either looking to the south, to Lebanon that the next time, or possibly to Belarus in the north, depending on which coup has happened the first one. Indeed, Alex. Uh, and and uh, so be you. All the best to all our listeners.